you're limited more by your own perception of the world view mm -hmm. uh, or the world than you're actually limited by the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mind Matters. Uh, today is going to be uh, Harrison and I in the studio. Um, and we were going to be talking about cosmology. Um, mm -hmm. And not necessarily in the strictly uh, astrophysics sense, but more in the kind of like metaphysical worldview. Um, so along that line, I was reading God Exists But God Does Not, by David Ray Griffin, um, and it basically just kind of gives an overview of the arguments for God uh, in the process philosophical uh, mm -hmm. terms uh, and against the uh, fundamentalist theistic uh, version or conception of uh, the omnip omnipotent deity. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really interesting uh, just going through everything, um, but he does have a section on cosmology and cosmological order. Um, so, let's see, where was it? Uh, talking about cosmological order, there is um, the argument for God uh, against like Newton and Kant, there's evolution, teleology, and a whole bunch of good stuff, uh, including novelty. Um, so I guess like kind of one of the questions that I was wanting to um, go over was what is what is our place in the universe? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's too broad. That's well, it might be too broad for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but. Before we get there, let's uh, let's take a baby step towards that question. So, um, well, what do you so what do you mean by that? Like our place in the world will. So I guess, do we want to? We'd have to kind of determine who we are and what the world yeah. is. So, mm -hmm. so um, well, there's um, there's life, or the way that I was kind of conceptualizing it was, you know, uh, the purpose of life. The that well. I guess more fundamentally would be the purpose of the universe mm -hmm. and then the purpose of life and then the purpose of uh, us as human beings, mm -hmm. which is all kind of built upon each other. Um, and I wasn't sure when we were going over uh, discussing the idea for the topic for today uh, where we wanted to kind of start with that and go from there. Mm -hmm. Do we want to just start? Uh... Well, I, I can, I think I can, get there in a roundabout way, maybe to start out with, because you mentioned the book that Griffin's arguing for uh, like a type of, a type of theism in within process philosophy. So process theism, you might call it. And he's arguing against like atheist positions and against more traditional theistic belief systems. So he's presenting a certain picture of God that he thinks is philosophically cogent, you know, that can, um, that is composed of I well the argument is composed of ideas that don't contradict each other and that don't contradict actual evidence that we see in the world so his his view wouldn't contradict any scientific data that we have mm -hmm. 
it might contradict some philosophical interpretations of that data, but it's not inconsistent with science, for example. But the image that he presents, because it's based on Whitehead and it's a process philosophy, is, I don't think that Whitehead t t puts it in these terms, but it does go back to the, the old um, you know, aphorism, as above, so below, the, the kind of hermetic ideal that, that there's almost a, uh, there's a correlation, kind of, well, Genesis too, you know, that, that God created man in his image, that there is a, it's almost like there's a, a fractal or holographic thing going on where the whole, the, all of the parts are um, in, in some sense equivalent to the whole. And so there would be some kind of equivalence equivalence between, let's say, any individual human and the totality of everything, which would be God, in, according to, you know, to, to these definitions. So to understand one, to understand either would be to, well, to understand one would be to understand something of the other. So everything that we, that we might learn about ourselves on a, on a fundamental level would be applicable to the whole and then everything about the whole would be applicable on some level to the part. Yeah, he makes a mention of there being, uh, uh, that God being the exemplar mm -hmm. of metaphysical uh, rules, laws, and truth, and moral morals. Mm -hmm. So, like you're saying, he would be the exemplar of it, so very similar to, you, we have these things, and mm -hmm. he just exemplifies that. Right. So, that principle will, will apply on all the levels, and I'll, I'll reference back our show the interview we did um, um, with Ken Peterson on the information system worldview and how you know he's looking at at the world from everything from the most basic things like information and energy up through quantum processes and and subatomic particles to to up through all those levels to humanity and humans and uh, our kind of a global information network that we that we call our civilization and uh, and culture. And then up to towards God, and so he's looking at all these different levels. And so Whitehead would go a bit further than that and point out the 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 basic principles that are the same. Well, not only the principles, but the basic ontology or being of things that is the same from the from the very bottom to the very top. So I mentioned the this the equivalence or the the comparison between a, a, an individual human and the totality and the and everything the same would apply to a subatomic process that there that um, in its most simple terms that all of those three things are equivalent there's something about them that is the same across the board and that's kind of it's kind of one way of saying that we that everything everything has something in common with everything else because we are all part of the same world the same universe the, that um, if there was something so drastically different about something like on the very level of being that that it's almost like the, the such a contradiction wouldn't even be able to exist in the world like there has to be some kind of commonality not only does there have to be a a space in which to interact but but something about the very nature of that of the stuff in that space is the same stuff like it's able to interact in some way mm -hmm. that's kind of a it's probably not an, a totally accurate picture of the of the argument but it, there's something also like that in his argument against like uh, cartesian dualism like the, this mm. idea of two two totally different substances that can somehow interact it's one of those philosophical problems that will really pretty much only 
exists in philosophical, you know, books like this because no one really, no ordinary person actually like thinks about these things, but they're kind of like logical problems. Well, if this is what you're saying, well, how does, and, and this is what you're saying, how do these, how does, how do those ideas actually work? And it's the philosopher's job to say, well, that can't work. Or, and well, here's how to solve this problem. Or if we get rid of that and rethink this, then that mm -hmm. gets rid of the problem. That's kind of what Griffin's really good at. But, so there's these similarities between everything. So one kind of roundabout way to find a, to find a general, a generalized, or like a, an extremely general purpose would be to look at all of these things and find the commonalities and say, okay, well, well what place does, what place do I fit into the universe that, that has something in common with everything else. And of course, then we can go from the most general level, which is really what philosophy tends to deal with is the biggest generalities down, down to, to the more specific until you come to the, the totally specific, which is you or me, and then even more specific me in this precise moment, because you can have, you can have time purposes, right? Well, what's, what's my purpose over the next, the rest of my lifetime? What's my purpose over the next 10 years? What's my purpose over the next week? Mm -hmm. um, and how do I achieve that? And the way all those fit together is, is on this basic level of the, the nature of being, the, the nature of existence and ontology for, for Whitehead is that everything is, uh, try to really quickly sum up some of the ideas that I think we brought them up in our interview with John Buchanan is that every everything is is both a um, you could call it an I and an it. There's a an, a subject and an object aspect to everything in the universe. So I am a an experiencing, thinking, you know, perceiving subject in this moment. At the same time that I am a a sensory object for for you, Adam. Like so, we are interacting in a way, but but neither of us have access have total conscious access to the the agency of the other so i'm not i can't i'm not maybe i can but i i but i can't experience your like your thoughts and what it's like to be you those, those mm -hmm. things seem to be off limits in such a way that on a very fundamental level of course if we get into psi there's evidence that there might be some kind of leakage and uh and process philosophy accounts for that too so that on some unconscious level the the the, the subject side of myself has access to all of these streams of information, some of which is what's going on in your mind, but only the stuff that might be relevant or necessary to me might come to, might like, you know, surface to, to conscious awareness in some, um, in some manner, whether in, a, in, a, in imagery in a dream or just a feeling or a hunch or whatever. But that's one aspect is that we have this subject and object sense to each other. And so this is part of how, um, how Whitehead tries to resolve the the conflict between determinism and free will. It's that that um, philosophy. Well, I think he'd argue that philosophers did a great disservice to philosophy and to people in general when they um, got rid of the Aristotelian notion of a, a final cause, which is an aim um, or a purpose that something moves towards. So you have efficient causation, which is like physical causation, like you one ball hits another and it moves. But then final causation would be, okay, so the, so you decide to punch me in the face, and then I like I decide or not to move out of the way. Maybe I don't have time. But if 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 you if I don't move out of the way, you then connect, and it's like one ball hitting the other. There's the efficient causation, but there is a real element of of the choice involved and the and the agency. So 
So for, for Whitehead, the agency involved, the, the free will is in that mental or um, subject pole of, of the thing. It's the thing that chooses between the possible future states that, uh, that can be manifested in the world. And then once that, once that choice is made, that then kind of uh, folds into the, the reality of the being that, that I am and then it gets manifested. So that can be like just the, the movement, of, it can be physical movement or, well, a lot of what it is in human terms is physical movement. It's the choice, it's the, the things that I choose to, on some level, you know, in some mysterious way, I choose to move my vocal cords and push air through them in such a way as to make speech that is intelligible. Um, but it's movements and every kind of, or the vast, I'd say the vast, vast majority of the ways that we interact with each other are movements of our physical body. It's whether we're writing an email or moving our vocal cords or, you know, gesticulating or making, making facial expressions. All those are possible physical states and possible sequences of physical states that we put together in a way to be meaningful to, to another person or another being. It doesn't necessarily have to be a human. It can be your dog. Um, so the, so he's, so Whitehead and Griffin too, cause he likes Whitehead is trying to kind of reconcile these things that, uh, that these big philosophical problems is, and that get imported into worldviews, like people who might have a staunch belief in determinism, like a, a lot of, a lot of uh, scientists today don't believe there is any such thing as free will. They think it's impossible. And, uh, Griffin and Whitehead would argue, well, that's a consequence of their of the their philosophy, which is the result of the development of philosophy over the last couple hundred years, and that it's not, um, it isn't. The, well, the uh, the case isn't as closed as they think it is. Mm -hmm. and it's because there are these blinders on on it with built into their worldview that kind of just close themselves off from that because they they say it's pretty much circular. Free will can't exist because free will doesn't exist and free will doesn't exist because it can't exist. But neither of those propositions really makes any sense or has any, um, any justification at just looking at let's say like the physical evidence. And at the same time too, you also, there's the, the solipsistic nature of, uh, making these assertions or certain claims by, um, we'll say like the scientific materialists where they, like with mathematics, they will, you know, when they're using mathematics, they mm -hmm. believe that they're real. Mm -hmm. But in, and that's in like right. practical terms. But yeah. then as soon as they go back into their, uh, like study room, I guess, yeah. and they're trying to like figure things out, they're like, oh, they don't actually exist. Yeah. Yeah. That, what does Griffin call that? Like performative self contradiction or something like that? Yeah. Performative <clears throat> contradiction. Yeah. Where you, you verbally express a, a proposition or a, uh, a belief or a conviction and at the, the very instant that you're doing it you are contradicting that statement so by with free will it's by choosing to deny free will you are using your free will to deny it and contradicting yourself in the process and demonstrating mm -hmm. that free will exists um it's <laughs> i can't remember who said it first or if i came up with it but because you often hear guys like richard dawkins talking like this right totally determinism totally deterministic and then you say, well, then who wrote your book? It's like you, you didn't. You're saying you didn't actually choose to write this book. You didn't. You had you had no role whatsoever in coming up with the arguments. You kind of. <laughs> it's actually kind of a. It, it could be a liberating philosophy because all of a sudden, um, there would be no ownership of intellectual property or or anything else 
um, in principle, but principles don't exist in a world that doesn't have free will, so never mind that. But it's still just funny to think about how Richard Dawkins and all these guys who like labor away at their computers composing these books and, and choosing to delete and choosing to change words, well, they didn't actually choose any of that. It just came out of them. Mm-hmm. It's just a... It was just their 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 particles that just happened to move in such a way to give them the illusion that they were actually thinking. <laughs> yeah. So there's that that whole uh, like you were saying they didn't really like if if what they're saying is true they didn't actually choose to write their book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and in the same way like they didn't really choose to reject religion, right. um, which. I mean, they, they make it seem like this kind of like grand conspiracy to make you uh, subservient to the priestly class, which I think in a, in a way can be, an argument can be made in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, they've chosen not to. Right. And they the, their entire arguments are, are built upon the premise that they can change people's minds. Ah, yes. And that their minds have been changed. Yes. They've seen reason. But really, they, they haven't, they're not reasonable. They don't, they don't have reason. Reason is impossible in a in a world without free will. So they are just this machine who has convinced itself that it has that it's smart, essentially, that it's mm-hmm. come to good conclusions about things, and then convinces itself that that uh, well, in this very self contradictory way, that it that this machine can then convince other machines to change their minds when it's just following its own its own programming, and everyone else is just following their own programming, and the ones that only seem to be convinced are just um, it was just a mechanical reaction in their body that made them seem like they now believe something else, but they don't actually believe anything because they're just a machine and they don't actually have beliefs or are able to form thoughts or to able to or or are able to reason. So it's just it gets to this ridiculous like absurdity, just mm-hmm. following following a, a simple premise like that to its logical conclusion to the point where you can't take anyone you can't take someone who denies free will seriously because they don't take themselves seriously. Yeah. So if we wanted to, cause I don't want to spend the whole time just like, yeah. you know, going off on these guys and just how ridiculous they are. Um, what was your, what was the idea that you had in mind? What was the question that you were really wanting to explore? Um, well, I've had an, I've had an idea of, We've done it a couple times on the show. It's just of just trying to put together a bunch of the, the stuff that we've been talking about into a mm-hmm. kind of a, a picture. And one way of doing that that we could look at with maybe some of the elements from this book is to to put together a, some of the things that we were talking about with Peterson and with Buchanan, and then um, maybe some probably some other shows um, to to kind of look at what might be some aspects of that big picture totality like god in griffin's word or the the cosmic mind or the, you know the the divine whatever mm-hmm. and um and then some of the some of the things from peterson well th- maybe the way to get into it i want to talk about a couple ideas from rupert sheldrake mm-hmm. that uh that he had in his one of his most recent books science set free which is actually quite a few years old now, I think, at least five, maybe, I can't remember, 10. Um, And it was this idea of physical laws or physical constants. Because maybe for people without a math background, and I don't have a math background, I mean, my math is 
what I learned in, in school, but mm-hmm. I think I have enough of a background to give the very basic ideas. Like when you have, when you have something like gravity, there is a gravitational constant. So depending on like, you know, the, the mass of the earth and the th- thing on it, that there is, so depending on those ratios, there will be a constant like rate of acceleration for a body following, falling towards that bigger body. So on earth, it's what, like, Negative 9.8, 9.8, yeah. Yeah, 9.81 meters per second squared or something, something like, like that. that. So, uh, and the, the actual number isn't important, but <laughs> <laughs> but there's so there are all kinds of these like physical constants that are a, a number that seems very precise. And there are all kinds of uh, theories about what's going on with these numbers, how why they are the way they are. Um, there are argument like the fine tuning arguments or the anthropic principle arguments that say that uh, that they are the way they are because they were because they could be any other value, and the fact that they're the, they're precise values and in some cases in a lot of cases the ratios of different values together work in such a way as to to make to seemingly make our universe possible. Like if this value were were a little bit off then it wouldn't have the precise ratio with this other value and like you know these these electrons wouldn't be able to like hold, yeah. like hold on to their atoms you wouldn't at get all. more than helium yeah and everything would fall apart and etc cetera, etc cetera. so some pe- some of the, those people argue okay well basically there must be like a um, a physical constant dial like system set up in the in you know the the holy temple in the, <laughs> up, up there and you know god precisely chooses all of those precise values to to make it all work essentially and then there are others that say well there are some some assumptions built into that because we don't know like constants are still a bit of a, a mystery so so one of the things that Sheldrake talks about in this book, which I found really interesting, was um, some actual experiments. So exper- and what was the book? Science Set Free is the, I think, I can't remember if, The Science Delusion is the okay. is its English title. Yeah, I think Science Set Free was its UK title. But um, he talks about some experiments in measuring gravity, I think, and how, like, with more pre- more and more precise um, measuring capability, they're basically able to, to narrow it, narrow it down to like a very, uh, like, uh, you know, a very large, um, number to a, to a very large number of decimal points, basically. So more and more precise. But if I remember correctly, what he's saying is that some of these results look like it may not be as constant as we think it is. And there are, there are a few, um, possibilities to 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 explain this phenomenon. It could be that it is a very precise value, but for whatever reason, the the instruments just can't necessarily be that accurate to get that one precise value. It could be that the um, that the values um, are. I think he put it like being stochastic in nature. So there's basically a set of values clustering around this tiny um, or this very precise number, and it just kind of like will randomly. Mm-hmm. choose between them so you measure at one time it might be a tiny bit lower or a tiny bit higher than it than it actually or than it was beforehand so it, the the constant might actually be like kind of like hovering around this like an electron in an electron cloud maybe yeah maybe kind of like that or like a like like a fly caught in a jar you know it's just <laughs> it's moving all over the place right but there are certain bounds that it can't get out of so i mm-hmm. guess kind of like an electron too or it could be or it could be that maybe a combination of them, but the I think maybe a th- the third option or a third option would be that the values can change over time, so they're not constant. So maybe not only are they not precisely constant at one specific value, but mm-hmm. they they might 
um, they might like be like randomly flit about in the, in this small number of values, but it might actually change over time as well. So gravity now might not be the same as it was billions of years ago. It might, that might, that value might have kind of been a, a convergence of, of something. And this, this is actually an idea that Whitehead, um, proposes too, that, uh, so in his system, this would, this is the way it kind of has to be that the, that the physical constants that we have are only constant. Well, they're not constants. They're not laws, as he, as he says. They are habits. And so this is what I think. This is why Sheldrake likes Whitehead too, is because uh, Whitehead talked about the habits of nature. There are no laws of nature, um, at least not as we th not in the specific, not in reference to the specific laws that we think about or that you know he's referring to. There are habits of nature. So there is a, a habitual gravitational constant in the sense that over time m matter has learned to converge on that value for whatever reason somehow it like so it could have been vastly different and this this actually might work with a, f a fine tuning argument too where you have these very basic energetic you know material things that have all of these possible um, behaviors I'm going to I'm going to purposefully use like um animal or or li living thing descriptors like and, and verbs so you have all of these behaviors possible behaviors and as the universe progressed and evolved it was kind of like um they might the, well I'm I'm leaving out something important that I'll get to but how exactly this this change happens and how exactly that's even possible but leaving that aside for the moment, you have all of these things with possible behaviors and it's, it's as if kind of like a, a mouse learning a maze, the, all of these, these bits of energetic matter kind of learn to approach the values that then prov that, that, that then produce the most harmonious full picture. So it's not like God is, is up in the sky turning the, the, the dials and saying, okay, that's the one, let it go. It's, it's uh, in Whitehead's view. There's a an initial chaos where nothing makes sense, nothing is ordered, and slowly out of that chaos emerges that harmonic order where things work together. So, um, so there are no divinely ordained physical constants or laws. They are um, the end result. They are the the habits that result from the choices um, and decisions and 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 feelings of the, the 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 basic material stuff and how that ties in with with um like process theology is that the the main one of the main roles for god in this philosophy is to provide what um what whitehead calls the initial aim and this is something that um that um, john buchanan brought up in our show this idea of an, an initial aim. I'm pretty sure he brought it up. And that is, well, okay, so if the world isn't deterministic, strictly deterministic, where everything can only do one thing and everything just plays out, you can, you can move it forward or back like the slider on your video on the, you know, when you're opening it, when you've got QuickTime open and it'll just, pl it'll play out totally the same forward and back and there's that, just that one possibility and it just inexorably just is what it is. Um, it seems that 
quantum physics kind of has opened up that picture to at least the point where, well, there are moments of indeterminacy where you don't know what is going to happen next. It could be this, or it could be that, or it could be that. And so there's like, oh, so all of a sudden that picture gets broken up into countless tiny frame, uh, tiny frames where each one is like branching. Well, this could go here, here, here. Okay, but it went here. So now here, here, here. And, and so you get, all of a sudden you get um, a, a video file that um, could be completely different um, depending on which iteration you take. So mm -hmm. it's not this strictly determinist thing. But then, you know, Whitehead goes a bit further and says, well, it's not even that. It's not just that there's, it's not just that there's indeterminacy, because even indeterminacy doesn't necessarily need um, like a conscious choice or even a, even an unconscious choice. It's, it could just be random. It's like you just flip the dice and then it says, okay, not this one, not this one, this one, you know, this one, this one, this one, this one. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no, re no, there's not necessarily any room for freedom or free will in just just looking at in some interpretations of quantum theory so what you but what you now have is at least the the possibility of it and so the question then becomes well then where does the where does the impetus or the um like the what's the word where does that the so, novelty ki kind of where does the the charge or the the weight for one choice over another come from novelty has something to do with it, but that's what the initial aim is. It's that it's here is the, well, I think according to Whitehead, it's basically here is the best option available for you given everything about you and about the universe right now. And that basically enters into the, the being in that moment of becoming that moment of like prior to manifestation as everything comes together and, and gets, you know, data processed and and then determines what the next state will be. Whether my my you know my hand moves here or here, whether I choose this job or that job, you know, whether a whether some quantum process goes this way or that way, that there is a, an initial aim that is presented to that being to to produce the the best thing possible, and then. Um, in the case of humans who have more free will than protons, there it gets more complicated because we don't just have full and total like total access to that initial aim. It's not like a, it's not deterministic in the sense that oh here's the aim and then I just follow it like a robot and all of a sudden the the world is the best place possible because I've made the best decision. There are all kinds of factors that are affecting how I will choose. There's my entire past that might have set me up habitually, I might have developed a habit that makes me totally blind to that best option. Mm -hmm. So I might miss an opportunity because of the, the choices I've made and the, and the circumstances that have happened to me. So at least that's, that's one aspect of you know, my understanding of this initial aim. It is that, it, that there has to be something in, in this worldview where there is free will that provides the options available to you. Because Presumably, if there were a lot of options, you, th there's nothing that, like, logically that says you have to be aware of those options. There can be all kinds of options, and the world can still play out deterministically along one track, so you just have that one movie, right? There are all these other options, but I have no access to them, so I just do the, the one thing that I can do, and the universe plays out like that, that uh, deterministic block. 
that uh, that unchangeable movie back and forth. So there has to be a, a way of accessing those possibilities, of actually prehending them, as Whitehead puts it, of actually grasping them uh, in, with your consciousness in some way. And so that's one of these aspects that gets brought into this picture, is that not only do these possibilities have to exist in some way, because they don't exist like atoms exist or um, you know, like physical objects, because possibilities are by, by nature and by, by definition, not material things. So they have to exist in some way. Then we have to have access to them. We have to be able to interact with them in such, in, in such a way as to make them um, effective in, in the world. If they have to be able to do something in the world. They have to be able to act on a, a person or a thing. Um, if, because if there's a possibility for me to do something and it has no way of entering into my being and my consciousness in some way, I won't do that thing because it's not part of my world. So there, so right away there's uh, there's an ontology. There's a a, um, a the the nature of, of existence. How do possibilities exist in the world? And there has to be a perceptual apparatus. How do how do beings perceive those possibilities? How does that how is that possible? Both of those things are impossible, by the way, under the materialistic worldview. Possibilities can't possibly exist because the only thing that exists is non-material by definition. And so possibilities all of a sudden don't exist. And then the perception of those possibilities must be impossible because, first of all, non-physical things don't exist. And therefore, and, and also, there's no possible way of perceiving non-physical things because non-physical things don't exist. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, um, again, we could take that to the to the level of absurdity where you have no access to other possibilities. So Richard Dawkins writing his book has, you know, when he uses the wrong word and he's going over and revising, he has no possibility of recognizing that he's lost the, the other word because he, he can't even perceive the possibility that he has put the wrong word in there or he's made a typo. Um, there needs to be an element of freedom in, or, in order to, to, um, in order to compare one thing to any other thing. And that's really what most mentation and cognition comes down to is some form of comparison. So, um, well, I'll, I'll just get into one other way of thinking about this. This gets back to something that Jordan Peterson often talked about in his lectures, especially in his debates with um, Sam Harris about the, like, the nature of facts and, and values. So one of the points that, that Peterson made is that, well, in order... well. It's been so long since I listened to those, I'll probably get it wrong, but something, I think his argument was something like, well, whenever you're looking at facts, in order to, in order for, to even create a worldview based on facts, you have to have a way of identifying the facts, of, of excluding everything that isn't the fact. And in order to do that, you need to import value. Values, so, because Harris was saying you can derive or you can... Um, Something like you can derive values from facts. You can start with facts yeah. and then get values out of them. And Peterson is saying, no, actually, values have to come first because you need to you need to have a you need to value the fact over the non-fact in order to even identify the fact in the first place. And so this too is kind of a general principle that, just like earlier, as above, so below, it's it's a general principle that seems to have to apply to every to everything, to every level of of creation into every every process, the, every mental process, every emotional process, everything that you can possibly think of, this needs to be somehow fundamentally underpinning all of that. 
and it is this notion of importance. This is, uh, I just started reading a while ago um, another one of Whitehead's books, The um, Modes of Thought, I think it is, where he has, he just, he, he has this section devoted to importance. He's like, well, I'll, he doesn't put it this way, but he basically says importance is the most important philosophical topic, you know, because you don't often think about it, but when you do, you realize, okay, well, yes, because think it's, about perception. It, or, it's the only, um, well, like you were saying, it's the only way of determining uh, what is and what isn't mm -hmm. is, is what's important. I mean, it's, it's a so foundationally built into everything that mm -hmm. there's no way of getting around it in order to, to structure this thought that I'm speaking right. right now is because it is an important one. Well, why is it important? Mm -hmm. Well, because of the conversation we were just having and mm -hmm. so on. So it, it really, it, wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's important on, on so many more levels than that, because even in the very act of, of speaking, there's an importance to the next syllable that you're going to pronounce, of course, the next phrase that you're going to make, to the, the, the tone of your voice, the volume of your voice. Everything, there, is a, a, there is value inherent in every, every, every part of that process, from the most long-term to the most short-term. Um, and all of that will have to be in mind, because you have to keep in mind that depending on what you say to me, that could affect our interactions in our relationships for the rest of our lives, right? You could say something that is completely inappropriate or, or, you know, whatever. So that on some level, you're thinking about that when you're, when you're speaking to anyone, there is a, so that's almost like a regulatory mechanism that's working on your speech at all time is that, okay, what are the, the bounds of what I can say? And then what are the specifics that I want to say in this moment? And then you have to form your thoughts down to the kind of microsecond None of this goes unconsciously, or at least very little of it goes unconsciously. It's a lot of these are unconscious choices that are being made, but they are choices because every at every at every instant, there's a difference that or a different thing that you can make, right. a different angle you can take, a different way of inflecting your voice, like you mm -hmm. were saying before. It's yeah, exactly. So this so Peterson gives the example of facts and how values are essential for for even selecting the facts. But another example where this, when we were just talking about speech, a third example is even just perception and, it, and attention. Because in order to, and he talks, uh, Peterson talks about this too, about the, you know, the studies when they were, or, or the early forays into artificial intelligence and trying to, trying to reproduce visual perception using AI and them finding that even with a picture with like clearly defined shapes, the, the AI would just perceive it as just kind of random noise because there is all kinds of there's all kinds of stuff that's going on before you even um, perceive what you think is just happening instantaneously. There's all kinds of processing and previous kind of um, previous iterations of experience that have formed have formed habits of perception for you to then recognize everything in this space in the in the in the space of your your vision and your perceptual field. And inherent in all of that is value too. So the point Peterson makes is that when you're looking at everything, you're not seeing the object, you're seeing its value. So you're seeing a chair because you know that chairs are useful, they do these things. Like everything that, everything that you see, you have differentiated from everything else because it plays a different role in your life. And so some things are neutral, some things are, are highly sought after, things that you want 
for yourself or that are good. So you might, so of course, food and things like that. And then there are the things that are bad that have uh, a very negative emotional valence for you that you want to avoid. But everything that you see, everything that you perceive, the reason you perceive it is because you're differentiating it from everything else. You're saying that thing is that thing, not all those other things. And that applies to everything that you see. You wouldn't see anything if you didn't have any of that data and, and all of that, any of those, uh, those data points to compare to. So when you're, when you're perceiving, there has to be, um, well, importance comes into it. Even where you focus your attention, the, the, the point at which you look, there is something inherently more important about it to you at that moment Otherwise, you wouldn't be looking at it. The, the two are just like, uh, are inextricably linked. There's the, your attention is actually you directing your, um, your consciousness, your mind, your perception to something that you find important, that is important to you for some reason. And that is essential to, well, to, to everything, to being. So this comes back to, um, sorry, I got an itchy nose. <laughs> but this comes back to the initial aim uh, from the cosmic mind, um, giving you that initial value of, you know, what is, uh, good, uh, in that particular instance or in that particular mode, or even at the very beginning of things, uh, when it set the whole into motion, uh, we could say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it not only provides the very notion of importance, but the, but the, well, the very notion of importance, the most important thing for you in your context at that moment, and then all of the other important things for all other reasons. Because one thing, one thing will, well, it's just another way of saying that in any given moment, this would be, I guess, a basic premise or a basic like axiom of this way of thinking is that at any given moment, there is a best choice that you can make. Just like you know, if you're doing target practice with a bow and arrow at any given moment and on any given shot, there's a best result that you can get. And that's a perfect bullseye. And then there are all the other possibilities. There's everything that can, that can um, distract you or cause you not to get that, whether it's a lack of practice and just a, a relative lack of ability or, um, or how do they put it in nurturable, like wind, uh, wind distraction, uh, you know. Well, I can't remember what the <laughs> yeah, other one is. Two other ones. But there are all those things that, that distract you from that initial aim. And, of course, the initial aim doesn't have to be the bullseye. You could be aiming for, for something else. So it's not like, it's not cut and dried. It's not, um, it's very hard to to create a, a cut and dried kind of... Um, ethic out of this. So for instance, um, like it's not necessarily the case that you can create, or it's not necessarily the case that it's possible to create a religious or a philosophical system or a, or a spirituality that says, these are all the rules, right? So yeah. here are the things you have to do in your life. And that's, that's the initial aim. Basically, that's the best thing you can do possible in all in all situations no exceptions that's kind of impossible in in this worldview but what would be possible is kind of uh, more well generalities so in these types of situations this might be the best response 
unless this is the case, in which case this would be a better response, but, and it just keeps on going infinitely until you get to that one specific moment and you have the one thing that is the best thing that you can do. Now, the, the, the grace of the situation, to bring it back to like a theological perspective, is that that possibility is there, that it is possibility to know the right thing to do. The, the, tr uh, the struggle is to be able to find it and to be able to, to know it. And I think that's what, um, that's what would, would tie this kind of like um, abstract philosophy down to the, the things that we've been talking about in shows on spiritual systems is that, that those, all of these spiritual practices or systems or, you know, ex um, you know, experiences would have the goal towards um, making that possible. So in Christianity, in early Christianity, we talked, uh, I think we did, yeah, we did those couple shows on um, Tim Ashworth and his, his book, Paul's Necessary Sin. So in, in the Apostle Paul, in the, in the letters of Paul's in the, in the New Testament, he called this, um, translated literally, faith's heard thing. So when you, uh, the, a primary element of faith is to be able to hear the word of God and to then put it into action and to have trust in that word as being true. And of course, like we mentioned in those shows, there's all kinds of you know, aspects that we can talk about in relation to what Paul meant by prophecy and what, the, what it meant to, to, hear, uh, to hear faith's heard thing and what it meant to respond to that. Because implicit in the, the concept of faith's heard thing, the, 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 the thing you hear with faith is the idea that you will then be able to um, to put it in act, into action and actually do it. But this is kind of what we're talking about, where the faith's heard thing would be um, the truth. It, well, it's simply the truth, but uh, it might be the truth about a situation. Um, but implicit in that truth would be what to do about it. You know, what are your options? And to, to be able to see those things so that you could then make the right choice. And this ties back into our discussions of Stoic philosophy, and how the Stoic sage is the one who knows what to do in every given moment because he is virtuous, because he has essentially trained himself to be able to recognize the situation, like discern the truth of it, and because he knows himself and knows his place in the world, know what is possible, and then know what he wants to do, and then do it. And, to, and the way Gurdjieff would put it would be to, to not be able to do anything that's not in your understanding. So if you understand something, that means that uh, this, is, this is like the, the exoteric, mesoteric, um, eso or exo, whichever one I forgot, um, levels is that on the esoteric level and, well, and mesoteric levels, he was saying, but that's just jargon, you don't need to know about that, is that what, you, what the person on a high level understands, they are not able to act against their understanding. That's pretty much a perfect de definition of a stoic sage. It's the perfect def definition of... Um, a, an, uh, an adult in Christ or an elder in Christ or one of the perfect in, you know, in early Christianity. It's to be able to, to clearly hear the message, right? Hear the, the cosmic signal that's coming down to you of, oh, well, actually, there, first of all, there is a scale, a hierarchy, uh, a range of possible options in any given moment. Um, like you can see in like quantum theory, for instance, in, in subatomic processes where there are all these possible states or things that can happen, there is a range of possibilities. Okay, great. Um, 
but I'm not totally lost because those all, those don't all have equal value. And they don't all have equal value in two ways. One, because of the value that, that they have acquired for me and that I have given them. And two, because there actually is an order in the universe. There is an, an objective measure of order and harmony that I can either be in, in harmony with or out of harmony with. And that, and I have the ability, at least theoretically, and, um, well, at least theoretically at some moment, and the, the promise is there that it, that it is possible to achieve um, in actuality, to then hear that. And I, an analogy just came to mind is music, is that in, in, when you're playing music, when you're playing a violin or singing, you have the possibility of being off key, right? You can be sharp or you can be flat or you can just totally hit the wrong note. Um, but if you're tone deaf, then you can't tell, right? But the analogy here is that we have the ability not only to, to sing all of these different microtones and to be sharp and to flat, but we have the ability to potentially hear when we are out of tune. And then correct it so that way we can actually hit whatever uh, note it is that we're actually striving for in order to make, uh, in order to perform a song that, you know, we know and are performing or are trying to, you know, create on our own and, you know, have in our minds mm -hmm. and are trying to bring it forward. Yeah. And the grand, there will be like a, a grand song, right? A symphony, which mm -hmm. is the, which is the, 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 the universe and the entire cosmological history of the universe. And, that the, the playing out of that universe is like the, the, the playing out of that melody and, and that orchestra. You know, it starts out chaotic and there's not much music to it, but slowly it kind of establishes a maybe like a harmonic overtone series where that would be like the physical constants where it's like, okay, now you have this, this set structure. And now within that structure, which is the very basic building blocks of matter that determine what subatomic particles do, what atoms do, how they combine to molecules and whatever. Once you have that structure, that possibility, um, that framework, now you have all of the possibilities for the different notes. And the different notes are the things that, the, the beings that, that are then composed of that matter that can then make choices and learn things and, mm -hmm. uh, and express possibilities that are inherent in the, the mind of God, in the cosmic mind, that then get brought into reality to be experienced um, for each thing's self to then learn and to, because now you have all these, all these notes, but now they're still not, not playing in harmony. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the, so the whole play of creation would be like the, the, with the, with the goal of achieving a, a harmonious whole, mm -hmm. you know? So there, like this actually got me thinking about an orchestra where you have um, each individual individual uh, and their respective either instrument or voice and so they can um, you know like you were saying there's certain um, not necessarily like laws per se but kind of like frameworks that that they work within um, and they can be sharp or flat and then they can work towards being better at that uh, and then so each individual person is you know say like playing the violin like you were saying and then you can combine them with you know the trombone or the cello mm -hmm. and then now you can have something that's not an order of magnitude but uh something that's just more complex like yeah, i can't remember a novel, a novel. Mm -hmm. um what was the, what was the word uh that 
that he used for um, when like uh, the different organelles come together to make a cell and the cell can act very differently than all the things that it composes. It's a new like actual occasion of experience, but it's yeah, like a higher order. It's, it's higher order. It's a new occasion. It's a uh, Sheldrake would call it a whole on or well, it's not his word, but he uses it sometimes. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. so you have, you know, all these individual people and they're all able to come together to uh, create this new thing, which is the orchestra, which is able to play this, infinitely more complex uh piece of music that has a you know all this greater uh meaning to it mm-hmm. uh and it and it can affect in an even greater way so like with you know all of these different uh like the gravitational constant and electromagnet electromagnetism the strong force weak force uh and gravity you know there's certain uh constraints therein and then all of these other, I think he said there were 26 specific content constants within mm-hmm. like the fine tuning argument, mm-hmm. um, that if they weren't as they were, then things wouldn't be possible. Yeah. And so they're all kind of built together to create the possibility for life, which then life can come together to form like an ecosystem mm-hmm. and the ecosystem can come together to form, uh, or to allow for greater or more novel or yeah novel uh, occasions of life, so like humans, mm-hmm. and then humans are able to you know do things above and beyond what animals were able to do, and they can come together in a group like a family and create something on a on another level mm-hmm. um, that's more than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. in this really interesting and cool way. Yeah. So he started out asking, what is our place, right? Or something like that. Something like that, yeah. What is our place in the universe? How do we fit into it? And that's, like, in a, in the amount of time that we've we've had, that's kind of as close as I think we can, we that, that I can get is that, uh, you know, we're a, we're a part of this universe and, and uh, there are certain possibilities inherent in that and limitations too. So, um, because we are, we're, we're limited out of, you know we're limited by uh, the nature of our being, um, so certain things are possible and certain things aren't possible. But knowing what the coming to know what those possibilities are through an examination of nature, of and it could be anything from from physics to chemistry to biochemistry to to um, you know animal behaviors and animal psychology and and human psychology. There's like no matter what aspect of the the universe you look at and study, there will be something that you can learn from it and that will be then um, applicable to informing not only your worldview, but even your your view of yourself and how you fit into the, the universe to, to know what, like, cause, because you can learn something by knowing what you are composed of and um, and what limitations that does put place on you or only seem to place on you. Um because there is always the possibility for for novelty and for new things and for um um well for the the impossible in some ways you know not the miraculous yeah for the miraculous uh, yeah to speak uh yeah i'll just say yeah <laughs> yeah the miraculous and uh well what i had in mind is something like um one of the things i started out by saying is the um what was it like the there is the 
I think it was about like the free will and determinism, how you can kind of create a, you can get an idea, you can think you have an idea of what your limitations are until you realize that, that your idea of what the limitations are were based on a faulty premise. So you actually aren't limited in those ways that you thought you were and that the, you know, the possibilities are open. Um, and that's probably the case more often than not. Um, the, the, the limitations are really not um, like the, the very fundamental limitations aren't really that limited because you are, you are a something that has access to the entire world of, of information and data that, uh, that you then form and, and which then um, contributes to your choices that you make in the world. And that's, that's kind of like the, the most limited way you can, or the, the least limited way you can look at it most or least or both. Um, like that's the limitation is that you are something that takes in information and then does something with it. Mm -hmm. And so you are limited, um, more like along with what you were saying, you're limited more by your own perception of the worldview, mm -hmm. uh, or the world than you're actually limited by the world. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. But the, like what, uh, what I think what Griffin well and Whitehead say is that one of the big limitations on us is that habits are strong. So not mm -hmm. only, not only in personal, like emotional habits and behavioral habits, but like the, the habit of physical matter is so strong. It's like, that's why that, that, that's, that may be why, you know, we don't have X-Men superpowers where we can just, you know, change our DNA at will and just, you know, and shape shift and do all these kind of things is because matter has a memory. It has a habit. It, it's, it wants to behave in the way it does. And that's why it habitually does so. But that's not to say that it always does so and that anomalies aren't possible. So just as a caveat. So it could be possible. Yes. <laughs> Superpowers might be possible. Might be possible. Ooh, I wonder. I don't know. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us today. Uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you uh, learned a few things and enjoyed this uh, discussion. Um, yeah, we'll be we'll be back with uh, our regular people sometime soon. I think, right? Uh, <laughs> eventually. Yes, it'll be me and Adam uh, next week too, and then uh, Corey should be back, and then Elan should be back after that. So hang on for for your favorite people until then. <laughs> Are you saying I'm not their favorite people? Well, I'm saying we're not their their favorite people, <laughs> or if we're not their favorite people, then then they'll be satisfied in the next coming, in the upcoming weeks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to like subscribe and share around the social media sphere. Um, in the meantime, y'all have a good weekend, good week, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.